look together at the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read the first six verses of this passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Put your seatbelts on. This is interesting and um, unusual. So here we go. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. As I mentioned this morning, our message tonight is entitled The True War on Christmas. Uh, We hear a lot of talk in our day about the war on Christmas. Um, A store chooses to use banners that say Happy Holidays rather than Merry Christmas, and we see them lambasted for their anti-Christian agenda. Uh, If somebody protests a manger scene in the yard of the local city hall, that person is marked as an enemy of all that is good and right in the world. And usually this is hyped up by our cable news channels, which make their money off of getting more people to care about and even to fear these kinds of things. Um, I personally am not concerned any whatsoever about this so-called war on Christmas. Two years ago, uh, I preached a message uh, concerning how we as Christians ought to view the Christmas holiday. And let me just very quickly remind you of some things we saw there. Uh, The first thing we saw was that Christmas is a holiday instituted by man, not by God. And so Christmas is not a sacred day. Uh, God nowhere set December 25th apart. God nowhere commanded his people to observe it as a memorial to Christ's birth. And therefore, it is not a sin to fail to observe Christmas in some specific way. Um, I know some who choose not to celebrate Christmas at all. True believers who do not believe in celebrating Christmas. They are not dishonoring God by choosing to go that way. Uh, If someone spends Christmas talking about Santa Claus and and reindeer, uh, we might can discuss the pros and the cons and the the wisdom or foolishness of those kinds of decisions. But it's not as if they are somehow breaking or dishonoring some command of God concerning how we are to celebrate Christmas. Those who say, keep Christ in Christmas, as though God has demanded that all people everywhere observe December 25th, as a day of celebrating and remembering the nativity, are mistaking man's traditions for the word of God. 
In fact, it's interesting that often there are many people who spend the rest of the year living in unbelief and disobedience towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they can become very upset when they think that somebody is not keeping Christ in Christmas. This reflects a real confusion, real confusion about what God has and has not commanded. And it reflects a real confusion about what really matters to God. What matters to God is not about saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. What matters to God is this. Are we honoring Christ on any given Monday? Are we honoring Christ throughout the year with the way we worship and pray and speak and act? Are we honoring Christ in our workplaces? Are we honoring Christ in our homes? Is the miracle of the incarnation that we unpacked over the last couple of weeks, the miracle of God becoming man and accomplishing salvation for our sakes, is that a miracle that has gripped our heart and won our faith and and brings out praises from us all year long? God cares way more about that than whether or not the manger scene in front of City Hall goes unprotested or not. Now that said, Christmas can be a very real time of spiritual benefit to believers. Um, Especially if you do celebrate Christmas in a a Christ-centered way, it can really be seized as a wonderful gospel opportunity, especially for teaching your children, for teaching your grandchildren. Also provides wonderful gospel opportunities for witnessing to relatives. So Christmas can be an incredible time for believers. But I don't put a whole lot of stock in this modern day war on Christmas as though uh, somebody is breaking some command of God. Uh, There is no command in the Bible to celebrate December 25th. That said, what I want to do tonight is draw our attention to a completely different war on Christmas. And this is one that we uh, don't usually hear about. This is a war on Christmas that took place over many, many centuries. A war on Christmas that took place for a very long time leading up to the day when Christ would be born, and indeed even then. This is the war that Satan declared on Christmas a long time ago. Uh, When we think of the nativity stories of the Bible, we usually think of two, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. But there is this other passage that speaks specifically of the birth of Christ, Revelation 12. But unlike Matthew and unlike Luke, the account in Revelation is mainly focused on how Satan did all that he could to prevent Christ's birth from occurring and to devour Christ once he was born. Now, anytime we turn to the book of Revelation, things get interesting. And so let me quickly remind you a few things about this book. You need to always remember that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. Uh, In fact, the Greek word that is used in the very first verse of the very first chapter of Revelation is that word apocalypse. We are told at the very beginning that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature was a unique genre that was very popular during the first and second centuries. This kind of literature often used symbolic pictures and visions to reveal divine truths hidden to the majority of mankind. And so when Revelation is considered alongside the other apocalyptic works from the same time period, we find that there are a number of similarities and also some differences. Vernon Poitras says this, he says, We must not expect too much from comparisons of Revelation with extra-biblical apocalyptic literature, 
But we do learn this one thing. The use of complex symbolism was in the air at the time when John was writing. It would not have seemed as strange then as it does now. So we open up the Bible to the book of Revelation and we think, wow, this is weird. But in the time when John wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there were other works using complex symbolism to teach truth that were out there in the day. This was a popular form of writing in the first century. Poitras then makes this point. He says, some people today come to Revelation with the recipe, interpret everything as literally as possible. That recipe misunderstands the kind of book Revelation is. Yes, John literally saw what he saw. When John says, I saw a dragon, what he saw in his vision was a dragon. But what he saw was a vision, and the dragon was meant to stand for something else. These visions were filled with symbols, right? Like the beast of Revelation 13, 1 through 8, and the the seven blazing lamps in Revelation 4. It never intended to be a direct, non-symbolical description of the future. So sometimes you'll find commentaries and, and, and teachers on the book of Revelation who try and read everything as if it is literally what it says here. And that's not the case. We know from the very first verse of the very first chapter, it's to be read as a book of symbols. And I'll give you a hint. The Old Testament is the key. The Old Testament is the key. Know your Old Testament. You'll see that almost every symbol that God uses in these visions to John is a symbol that was in Israel's history, a symbol that we see a time and again in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament helps us to unlock the revelation at the end of our Bibles. Now, the second thing to know about the book of Revelation is that it is not strictly chronological. That is, the book does not tell one continuous story from the first page to its last. Rather, the book of Revelation is a vision which contains seven, a series of seven distinct visions. So it's one vision with seven visions within it. And the way we've talked about this before is many of us have had dreams, right, where it's one dream, but one minute you're in the dream and you're over here and you're at this place and this time, and suddenly, just like that, you're way over here in a totally different place. Right? One dream, but that everything has changed. And then all of a sudden you're over here. Well, time and again, we find John saying things like, and then I saw, right? That, that's usually the words he uses. And then I saw, and it's usually telling you things changed. Circumstances changed. We're now going to a distinct vision. Um, these seven visions in the book of Revelation all tell the same story. They all tell the story of the events from Christ's first coming till Christ's second coming, judgment and entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. And each of these seven visions tells the same story from a little different perspective, emphasizing a little different things than the other visions. Now, that's important because we're looking at Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is the beginning of a new vision. Okay, Revelation 11 ends with the seventh trumpet being blown and the end of the world coming upon all, right? Verse 19, he gets flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail, all symbols in the Old Testament of the judgment of God coming upon the earth. And then all of a sudden, we go back from this end of the world, this climactic judgment of God, we get to Romans 12, verse 1, and we're back to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start the story over again with the new vision. This vision that begins in Revelation 12, verse 1, goes all the way through chapter 14. 
where we find the little baby Jesus born here at the beginning of chapter 12. We see him at the end of chapter 14 as the exalted Lord Jesus with a sickle in his hand harvesting the earth. Now, here is the story of Revelation 12, 1 through 6. The setting is heaven, right? A great sign appeared in heaven. And John says that what he is about to describe is a sign, right? A symbol, something pointing to something else. And the symbol that he sees is a glorious woman. This woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon as her footstool, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. This woman is in labor. She's crying out. She's about to give birth to a child. Suddenly, there's this other symbol that appears, this this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And this dragon is so ferocious and immense that its tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them down to earth. And what is this ferocious dragon doing? He is standing before the woman, impatiently waiting for her to give birth so that he might devour the child. And what happens? Does the dragon devour the child? No. The baby is born, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The dragon is unsuccessful in attacking him. The child is brought up to heaven, to the very throne of God. The dragon then turns his attention to the woman But she goes out into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, and God nourishes her and provides for her for many days. So, what in the world are these verses about? What is this teaching us? Well, let's go in reverse order. We'll start with the easiest. Who is this child? That's easy. The child is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promised child. This is the Messiah, the one whose birth was foretold and longed for for centuries. This is Psalm chapter 2, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is the one who was taken up into heaven at his ascension, the one who now sits at the very throne of God. So we know who the child is. It's the Lord Jesus. Okay, what about the dragon? Well, this one isn't complicated either. We know who the dragon is. It's Satan. In fact, John was kind enough to make sure we don't mess this one up. Look down at verse 9. Go to verse 9 and you'll see he tells us. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we don't have to guess who the, the dragon was. We know the dragon is Satan. Okay, so who then is the woman. Well, we might be tempted to say that the woman is Mary because she was the actual woman who gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the context shows that the woman here is actually the church. Uh, The rest of chapter 12 goes on to teach how Satan makes war against her, how Satan seeks to persecute her, how Satan seeks to destroy her. And the church here is not just the New Testament church. It goes all the way to the very first people of God, to Adam and Eve. And it was from these people, from God's people, the church, the holy remnant in this world, that the Messiah was to be born. And so this passage teaches us that Satan sought to prevent the Lord Jesus Christ 
from being successfully born into this world to accomplish the salvation of his people and the glorifying of his father. Satan got wind of what the father and the son were up to. He knew of the messianic promise. He did everything he could to stop it from happening. And when the baby was born, he did all that he could to cause the the plan to fail. This is the war on Christmas that I have in mind. Now, what I want us to do is go for a few moments through some of the scenes in Satan's war on Christmas. Uh, many of you have read uh, some of William Hendrickson's book, uh, More Than Conquerors, wonderful commentary on Revelation, highly recommend it. There are many, many more scenes we could look at, but I just chose a few that he draws attention to to show you what this war on Christmas looked like. So first, when did this war begin? When did Satan first determine to do all he could to prevent Christ from coming into the world, to keep Christ from accomplishing his sacred mission? Well, the answer seems to be that Satan determined to prevent this the first moment he learned of it. So turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. As you turn there, let me say that uh, Jonathan Edwards and some of the Puritans, perhaps partly because of Revelation 12 believed that Satan actually learned of this plan while he was still a holy angel in heaven. In fact, many of them, Edwards for one, believed that what caused Satan to rebel against God was he did not like this plan. He did not like the idea of God becoming man. He did not like the idea of men being set above the angels that he took it as a personal offense, and that, that it was this plan, when he first heard of it in heaven, that led to his rebellion and downfall. I don't think there's anywhere explicitly in Scripture that teaches that, but there have been some very godly people in the past who came to that conclusion. What we do know is that in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, after the serpent Satan had helped Adam and Eve to fall, And to bring the curse on all mankind, God issued a curse upon the serpent. And this curse included the gospel promise of a Messiah to come. So if Satan had never heard of the plan until now, we know Genesis 3, 14 and 15, Satan got wind of this plan here because God directly addresses it to the serpent. Serpent, there's going to be one that's coming and he is going to, well, look, let's read it. Verse 14. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the depths of that verse are incredible, but this is very clear. From Eve and her offspring, which seems to represent God's people, one is going to come who is going to crush Satan's head. Now, Whether or not this was the first time Satan had heard of this plan, we can be sure that from this moment, Satan made it his mission to prevent this from happening. From Genesis 3, 14 and 15 on, Satan was working to keep his head from being crushed. Satan was at work to prevent this Messiah from accomplishing his mission. So, move to scene 2, Genesis 6. Genesis 6, scene 2. Scene two is all of these centuries that pass between Adam and Eve and the great flood. All of humanity can be separated into the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. 
The offspring of the serpent is all those who continue in unbelief with hearts hard towards God, right? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, right? All of us are born as the offspring of the serpent in captivity to the whims of the devil. We, we hold the same rebellion he has in his heart towards God. We are born with that same rebellion in our hearts. But God in his grace changes some of us so that we become offspring of Eve. We become part of the godly in this world. So all of humanity can be separated into the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now, Satan's great task was to destroy the offspring of Eve. Satan's great task was to destroy godly people. Why? Because it was going to be from them that the Messiah would come. It was going to be from the holy remnant. It was going to be from the church that the Messiah would be born. So if he could destroy the faithful in this world, he could disrupt the plan. And cause it not to come to pass. So how does Satan do this? Well, the first holy man we meet in the Bible, after Adam and Eve, if you want to call them holy, was Abel. Abel was a faithful man. And what happens? He's murdered by his wicked brother. So then, it looks like, all right, is there any godly in this world from whom the Messiah will be born? Another son is born, Seth. Cain becomes the father of wicked offspring, living in wickedness. But Seth becomes the father of godly offspring. Offspring that seems to know the true God. Offspring that wants to serve the true God. It's not that every one of Seth's descendants became true believers. But in each generation, in Seth's line, there were some who passed down the gospel promise of Genesis 3, 14, and 15. In each generation, there were some in that line passing down the truth of the true God. So Satan's work to prevent the Messiah from coming in the world meant attacking that family, keeping those people from multiplying generation after generation. Hendrickson says, Satan whispers into the ears of Seth's sons that they should marry the daughters of Cain. And so Genesis 6-2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And so what we have here is the godly, the, the sons of God, those who were descendants of Seth and knew the true God, they began to intermarry with daughters of Cain who did not know the true God. And what was the result? Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Satan almost completely destroyed every godly person in the world. He, through intermarriage, through having the sons of Seth marry the daughters of Cain, their hearts were taken away from the true God. They did not pass down the true God to their children. At this point, it looks as if there is no one left on the earth to be faithful and godly. No one from whom the Messiah can come except for one. One solitary man. One solitary family. And that's Noah. Scene three. Satan was at work, but he did not prevail. Noah, God preserved Noah in faithfulness so that the godly line could continue. Now scene three. This is the scene of the patriarchs, right? This is Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Jacob's sons. And God promises that from one particular man, from Abraham, 
the Messiah will be born, which immediately puts a target on Abraham for Satan, right? Okay, so that one who's going to crush my head, he's going to come from Abraham's family. Let me do everything I can to destroy Abraham's family, to destroy them physically, but especially just to destroy them spiritually. Because if they don't become true faithful people, then God's promise will not prove true. And so Satan puts every obstacle in their way. It's hard for us to know exactly which obstacles Satan had his hand in because God was at work as well in, in trying these people. But we find Abraham allowing Sarah to be taken as another man's wife, thus putting God's promise in jeopardy. But God intervenes and returns Sarah to Abraham. We find that Sarah is barren, right? God says, from her the Messiah will come. She's barren. It appears that God's promise won't come true. And yet God intervenes again, and Isaac is miraculously born to a couple too old to have children. Isaac's wife faces barrenness as well, and God overcomes it. Jacob deceives his father, steals Esau's blessing so that Esau makes a vow to kill his brother. God says, from Jacob, my Messiah will come. Esau has now declared that he will kill Jacob. Yet God preserves Jacob's life. He flees to Laban, and over time, Esau relents, and the brothers are reconciled. Even in our story of Joseph, uh, there have been times when the promise of the Messiah looked dim. We, we think about this, this famine that has come that threatens the very survival of the family. We think about how in Jacob's mind, Joseph is dead. Benjamin is the only godly one left from whom the Messiah might come, and yet Benjamin... Right? Is, is off to Egypt, and right now where we are in the story, he doesn't know if Benjamin will come back alive. Right? So there's this, this moment of, of, of fragility, right? Is this thing going to hold up? Is this gospel promise going to prove true? Picking up the pace a little bit, go with me to Israel and Egypt. Israel in the wilderness, right? Where this is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have, you have Israel coming out of Egypt and into the wilderness, First, it looks as though the people from whom the Messiah will come will remain slaves in Egypt, that they will eventually die out or be assimilated into the Egyptian people. But instead, God miraculously, by His mighty hand, brings the people of Israel out of Egypt so that they maintain their identity, so that the Messiah can truly come from Israel. Then Moses comes down from the mountain, and he finds the people of Israel dancing around a golden calf bowing to an idol, right? Where is the godly here? Where is the remnant from whom the Messiah will come? They're, they're all bowing down to this idol. And God declared in Exodus 32.10, God sees them dancing around the golden calf. He says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In other words, God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to work with you. I'll make my Messiah come from you. Let me just devour all of these people. But Moses interceded. Moses prayed for them. Moses said to God, No, God, relent, relent. And God relented. And the people of Israel were spared. We see that time after time in the wilderness, right? The people of Israel were so stubborn. They were so hard-hearted. And time after time, it looked like God was going to destroy, just wipe out utterly the nation of Israel. And Moses, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, goes to the Father and intercedes on behalf of the nation and God spares them. Scene five. We have Israel. They come into Canaan, right? They're a united nation, but there are many, many threats to the existence of this nation. 
But think just about David. Right? God has revealed, all right, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come from the offspring of Eve, from, from the godly. And the Messiah is going to come from the children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, the children of Jacob. And then we learn he's going to come specifically from the lineage of David. If Satan then can get rid of David, he can cause God's promise to fail. If Satan can somehow cause the line of David to fail, to end, to be cut off, then God's promise will prove untrue. So we read of David's life in danger. We read of of Saul, 1 Samuel 18.10, harmful spirit. This is the spirit of Satan coming upon Saul, throwing a spear at David. He does that twice. If he can kill David, this is not Saul's thinking, this is Satan's thinking. If he can kill David, there will be no Messiah. But David survives the attack and Satan fails. And then we go to the king of Israel divided, right? And Satan is still at work trying to kill the lineage of David, trying to cut off that line so that the Messiah cannot be born. Judah is being ruled by a wicked queen named Athaliah. Everybody say Athaliah. All right, this is 2 Kings 11, in case you're wondering. Athaliah determines that she will destroy all the royal family. Athaliah determines that she is going to utterly cut off every descendant of David and have them murdered. And you know what? At first it looks like she succeeds. Verse 1. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. And we think, was all the royal family? It can't be. God said from David the Messiah would be born. And Satan has worked through this wicked woman to destroy the entire lineage of David. Except, verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. One little boy was hidden by this woman, given with his nurse. They were actually kept for many years in the temple, in a secret room in the temple, and protected. And in that, all of God's promises about the Messiah coming from the line of David was now on that little boy. And God preserved him, hid him away from Satan, so that the line continued. He actually became king at age seven. We often think of Josiah, but this little boy became king at age seven, became a godly leader. All right, uh, next scene. One more in the Old Testament. The Jews are in captivity to the Persians. King Ahasuerus is reigning, and he is influenced by a man named Haman, who was no doubt being influenced by the devil because there's no other way you can explain what happens in this story. Haman convinces King Ahasuerus to kill every Jew. To kill every Jew in Persian captivity. Esther 3.13 Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
So this is Satan's kind of last attempt in the Old Testament to utterly wipe out the people of God so that the Messiah cannot be born. Every Jew is going to be killed on the 13th day. And what does God do? You know the story. He raises up a courageous woman named Esther who was there for such a time as this, right? And she goes and she speaks to the king and the people are preserved. So time and again, as you're reading the Old Testament, what you're seeing is God makes this gospel promise of a Messiah to be born and we see obstacle after obstacle, Satan working in this way and that way to try and prevent it from happening and God overcomes and the line continues and people continue to wait for the promise. Now, our last scene we find in the New Testament itself. Because Revelation 12 actually pictures the devil impatiently waiting for the son to be born so that he can devour him. What did that look like in the New Testament? Well, it looked like a group of wise men coming to King Herod and asking, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And they meant it innocently. Right? They had come to worship the boy. They were not trying to bring any harm to the boy. But, but what does Herod hear when he hears what? A king of the Jews? Right? He instructs the wise men, once you find this boy, you come back and let me know so I can worship him too. He has no intent of worshiping this boy. This is the father of lies, the devil at work through King Herod. And Herod claims he wants this information for good purposes, but he doesn't. He wants to kill this boy. And when the wise men do not return, what does Herod order? He orders the massacre of every boy two years old or younger in the town of Bethlehem. And Herod orders this slaughter, and and all of these boys are killed. And it kind of looks like Satan has won, but he hasn't. He did not devour Jesus. Jesus was taken through the obedience of a young man named Joseph down to Egypt where he was preserved. And so this was the war on Christmas. The war of Satan trying to keep the messianic promise from coming about. This was your salvation and my salvation on the line. And Satan was at work, but he could not win. You know the rest of the story. Satan did not stop his attempts to destroy Jesus. If he could not prevent Jesus' coming, he would work to prevent Jesus from successfully completing the mission. The mission was for Christ to be the perfectly obedient sacrifice that we needed. And so we have Satan tempting Jesus time and again. We think about that special season of temptation in the wilderness. We remember how even through Jesus' ministry, Satan was at work trying to tempt Jesus away from being faithful. Remember Jesus saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Right? Peter had just said something, and Jesus sensed there's more going on here than just Peter. The enemy is here, trying to lull me away from my mission. Christ faced temptation from Satan throughout his life, and yet remained faithful. The dragon did not prevail. And then you get to the end of Christ's life. Satan was greatly involved in the death of Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, we read of, of people being possessed by demons. But only once that I know of do we read explicitly of a man being possessed by Satan himself. And that was Judas. When Judas went out to betray our Lord. Satan, we're told explicitly that it was Satan who used envy to stir up the religious leaders so that they would not rest until Jesus was dead. 
behind Pilate, behind the, the Roman soldiers, behind the Jewish crowd crying out, crucify him, was Satan at work. Satan was seeking to finally have his victory, to kill the Messiah he had feared for so long. And so in Satan's mind, the cross was the great moment of victory. But then when Jesus was near dead, and it appeared that victory was in Satan's grasp, something happened that I'm guessing Satan did not expect. God the Father did not send a million angels to rescue His Son. Instead, God the Father forsook His Son and unleashed upon Him the judgment deserved by every sin committed by every person who God has chosen for Himself. And in that moment, the death which Satan had been working so hard to orchestrate was seen to have not been orchestrated by him at all, but by God and by Jesus who died willingly, not as a victim, but as a voluntary substitute. Satan proved to be nothing but a pawn. And his victory was not a victory at all, but it was instead Christ's victory over him. Satan now has no weapon which he can use to do any eternal harm to a child of God. Satan now has no weapon he can use to do any eternal harm to the Son of God, to do any eternal harm to the glory of God. All of Satan's purposes were thwarted, his power broken, his fate sealed at the cross. At the cross, Satan is seen for what he is, a wretched worm who ultimately has done nothing to disrupt the plans of God, but instead has only played right into them. Not only that, but the role he has played has only served to show the glory of the one he hates, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in all of this, God's wisdom is revealed, our salvation is secured, Christ's name is lifted up, and Satan was once and forever defeated. Satan bruised Christ's heel, but Christ crushed his head. Now, Revelation 12 says that Jesus was then taken to his father's throne, right? The dragon's attack failed. The boy, the Lord Jesus, accomplished his mission, taken to the throne of God. What does Satan do? Well, he turns his attention to the woman, the church, the godly in this world. Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. She is in the wilderness. The wilderness is not a safe, comfortable place place. The church in this world is in the wilderness. We are always in danger. We are always suffering ridicule and persecution and temptation. And this is the overall theme of Revelation. Church still in this world. Persevere to the end. You're in the wilderness now, but Canaan is ahead. Persevere. Christ will make all things right. Everything that you suffer in this life will be set right. Every wrong will be punished. You will enter into the land of heaven. Though the church in this world is in the wilderness, and we've not yet passed into the promised land, we are exactly where God wants us. Right? It says that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So even when the suffering for Christ's sake comes, Even when God's people endure hardship and persecution and temptation, we have the comfort of knowing that nothing comes upon us that God has not appointed. That we are right where God wants us to be and that ultimately all of these things are for our good. 
And then what in the world does it mean when it says the woman is in the wilderness and he's, she's right where God wants her to be and Satan has now turned his attention on her, but that she will be nourished by God for 1,260 days. Well, that's half of seven years, right? Three and a half years. This means that the age of suffering for Christ's church will continue for a long time, but it will be cut short. Right? Seven, completion, perfection, right? Three and a half. Cut in half. Cut short. This is exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels about the days of tribulation. Remember, in the Bible, the days of tribulation are not just some you know, thing in the future. The days of tribulation are the days from the day Jesus went up into heaven to the day that Jesus comes back from heaven. We are living in the days of tribulation for Christ's people. It is both the day of gospel mission, the day of gospel expansion, people being saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and at the same time, the day of God's people being persecuted, the day of God's people being put in prison, the days of God's people being killed for their faith. We are living in those days. And Jesus says there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And that's why it's three and a half rather than seven years. It's meant to teach us that we in this world will experience tribulation and suffering. Satan is against us. He is a lion seeking whom he will devour. But Christ is preserving us. Christ is protecting us. He will not let us endure much anymore than His grace will be sufficient to bring us through. So, Christ has prevailed. Satan has suffered a fatal wound. And though he is still attacking Christ's church ferociously today, he will soon come to his end. We, on the other hand, because of Christ's coming and obedience and death, we will be delivered into heaven where we will dwell with our Messiah forever. All this to say, the war against Christmas failed. Satan failed. Christ was victorious. He came. He accomplished everything he was called to do. He crushed the head of Satan, and his victory, Mount Hermon, is our victory by faith in Jesus. Let's pray.